0: Welcome, everyone. It's so good to see you here this morning as we uh, gather to worship our Savior. My name is uh, Milt Johnson, as uh, was just prayed a moment ago, and it truly is my joy and my pleasure to open up God's Word now with you and to study it together. Someone joked with me at the first hour that if my sermon doesn't work out well with the way I'm dressed, I can always get a job delivering packages. So... (laughs) Some of you may already know this, but we began a sermon new series last weekend that we've entitled Reorder. And like Pastor Mike mentioned last week, I couldn't be more excited about the content of this new sermon series. Some of you will recall how when we were walking through the book of Exodus last year, fall and winter, there was a call to move forward, to look forward and not look back and and, and to go ahead with God. And then this summer, we spent a great deal of time looking at the promises of God in a series that we've entitled Faithful. And we were reminded as we go forward with God as a church and as individuals that make up this church, we go forward not in and of our own strength and our own abilities, but rather going forward with the hope of our faithful promise, keeping God. And you can't fail that way. And now this fall, as we walk through this sermon by Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, we are continuing to... Uh, Look to God to work in us to work in and through us as we move forward We want to move forward very carefully with God guiding us and directing us asking him honestly to reorder Every aspect of our lives and our ministries here at Chantilly Bible Church around our great king our true king in his kingdom wonderful wonderful opportunity as we go through this and so I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me if you haven't already done so to Matthew chapter 5 I'm not gonna sing it like Kyle did a moment ago, but uh, anyway, we wanna look at this text together this morning and uh, I wanna remind you as we do that this instruction that Jesus is providing is not meant to teach people, men and women, how to get into the kingdom, okay? That's done through the shed blood of Jesus and faith alone in him, but rather how do people who already belong to this kingdom of God live? How do we operate and live our lives in accordance with his kingdom principles? With that introductory thought in mind, I want to ask you to stand with me. We don't do that that often, and I want to ask you to follow along as I read verses 1 through 6 here of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Here we go. Seeing the crowds, he went up into the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That, dear friends, is the word of the Lord. Thank you, you may be seated. As you're being seated, I wanna give you three what I consider important observations before we jump into this teaching event that our Lord provided. First, Matthew doesn't pinpoint the exact location, but my understanding is the traditional site of where this took place, where the sermon was presented, was near Capernaum. Uh, Jesus, you have to realize, didn't have the, the state-of-the-art uh, amplification, and they didn't have acoustic amphitheaters at that time, and so he used something that he created himself a natural stage on a sloping hill. And I've been there. It's beautiful. It's beautiful if I understand where it is. And there was plentiful room there along the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. Hope you'll get to see it someday. The second, not too surprisingly, as Mike mentioned last week in a sermon, having such an amazing teacher who taught with such power and authority, healing words, powerful words, huge crowds were beginning to come to him. They wanted to follow him. And not just religious leaders. You have to realize that likely at this point you had Romans, you had Jews, you had uh, Assyrians, you had Sadducees, Pharisees, uh, Zealots, rich people, poor people, farmers and urbanites. They, they all were coming to Jesus. They wanted to hear him or at least be around him. And seeing the crowd, we're told here in verse one, that Jesus went up onto the mountainside and there he sat down like very common positioning for a teaching at that time, and he began to instruct them about his kingdom. Remember last week we learned that Jesus had called his people to this kingdom of heaven and to repentance. He wanted them to turn away from the world and turn to the ways of God. And I would submit to you as Jesus began to speak, those crowds that have gathered, these statements must have blown their minds. He was speaking something radically different than they were used to. And I would say probably among the most uh, surprised were his disciples. Uh, they, you see, and all the people that had gathered, I think, for the most part, were looking for a kingdom um, that was powerful, that would bring them recognition and respect, security and prosperity, uh, wealth. And here is Jesus talking about a king and a kingdom who, who is promoting humility and sacrifice and grief and, and uh, poverty and persecution. So although the um, people were gathered, I think they were pretty much blown away by Jesus' statement. And one of the things that I wrote down when I got to this point, although Jesus was not the king that they expected or wanted, as we'll go through this sermon, we're going to see he is indeed the king that they needed, just like all of us, right? A third observation I want to point out is that this section of the sermon, this opening section, is known to us as the Beatitudes. And the reason for that is the word Beatitude comes from a Latin translation meaning blessing or blessed. And uh, as we see in this opening, there's, I think, nine occurrences of the word blessed in the sermon. So they took for itself an identification of Beatitude. You know, if you think about it, We as Christians throw the word blessing, bless, and uh, bless it around quite a bit. Uh, For example, sometimes we use it to end a conversation that we think has gone too long. It might sound something like, okay, I got it. God bless you, right? You ever had those kind of conversations? Occasionally, we might say to a friend, I think sincerely, a loved one who's ministered to us, you're such a blessing. And I think that's a wonderful compliment to get from anyone. I remember as a young child, my dear old granny uh, would frequently, uh, just as sweet and as thick as maple syrup, bless your heart, you know? Uh, How many have grandmothers like that? Mine certainly did, And anyone, the milkman, the, anyone, anyone. And, And I won't even begin to go into all the reasons why I think it's not appropriate for Christians to say God bless you when someone sneezes. I won't go there, but we do say it, okay? Many people connect, bless, With uh, good fortune, some equate it with uh, total happiness. Uh, In fact, you know, even non believers, as I understand it, I learned this week, I am woefully ignorant on social media and all that. But uh, someone told me that uh, hashtag blessed is now vogue. Um, um, You know, a quick look at Facebook or Twitter, and you find many people today that are doing hashtag blessed. Uh, and the social media, as I understand it, it's a way of apparently boasting, and not, uh, not sounding uh, too, too boastful, but humbly boasting. I don't know how that works. You know, college scholarship, hashtag blessed. Unexpected position or raise at work, hashtag blessed. Wonderful family, hashtag blessed. Basically, if I understand it, if anyone receives something special, good, They're experiencing a desired outcome in their life or an achievement or enjoying a carefree, comfortable, and prosperous life. Although they often do not know by whom they're being blessed, they will write this hashtag, blessed. Now personally, I think that we as Christians might have to admit that we often operate a little bit like that. We fall into the trap of thinking that when everything is going well or our way, then we are, extraordinarily blessed, right? By all these things that I just mentioned, including the material things that God provides, because God is very good to us. They may in fact be a part of God's blessings in a Christian's life, but I believe, I hope to show you today as we look at this text that God ascribes a much deeper, much fuller meaning to the word blessed, okay? After all, I want you to think with me for a moment of the number of people in Scripture that walked very closely with God, and yet they suffered greatly, all the while being blessed. Um, While their trials were not necessarily the blessing in and of themselves, they were a conduit or a channel for them to be blessed. I was driving into work, I think, on Tuesday, and I heard Laura's story uh, where she sings in her song, Blessing. And she's asking honestly, and I've asked these questions, what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if trials in this life, the rain, the storms, and the hardest night, are indeed the mercies of God in disguise? We've all wrestled through that, I think. The Lord, we just sang a moment, the Lord gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is a, a, a pretty fundamental yet revolutionary idea that uh, the trials and blessings are often linked together, established in Scripture. And so it got me thinking, and, and this is kind of going back to what I just said a moment ago, perhaps, brother and sister in Christ, our definition of blessed is too limited. Maybe as we're walking through this text where where Jesus uses the word blessed nine times, we might need to do some reordering in our lives of what it means to be blessed. Now as you look back at your text here, the Greek word that's translated blessed, or blessed, has the basic meaning, just the basic meaning of happy or fortunate. However, as I start to think about it, as I look at scripture as a whole, when I define biblical blessed, or blessing, it's more than just a temporary or a circumstantial feeling of glee or happiness. For those who trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ um, is, is our savior and God grants to us when we put our trust in him, a more fuller and inner satisfaction, sufficiency and joy that, that does not depend on the outward circumstances of happiness. And I believe this is one of the things that sets apart God's kingdom from this world's kingdom. right? That's because whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, our good king is present with us. He walks through whatever we walk through with him. So great families and financial wealth and good health, they're all wonderful gifts, and, and we, could, we can and we should thank God. But I don't believe that's the, 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 the greatest, his greatest blessing. As I look at this text here, God's greatest blessing, I hope to show you, rests in the fact of God himself, he's provided our forgiveness, his complete permanence in our lives. We can not go anywhere without having him with us to provide all that we need. And only when we have that, I would submit to you today, are we truly hashtag blessed, okay? That's a thesis here. Let's get started here. As I started looking at verses one through six here, we're going to see that Jesus reveals, I think, actually beyond one, one, all the way through chapter uh, one, verse 12, we see that Jesus is providing a pathway to genuine blessing in God's kingdom. And I wanna look at each of those characteristics starting here in verse three, where we see blessing, genuine blessing comes with humility. General, uh, 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 genuine blessing comes with humility. Blessed, verse three says, are the poor in spirit, Were theirs, is the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to understand the phrase poor in spirit has nothing whatsoever to do with our financial well-being. It's all about where we are spiritually. What's our spiritual condition? And to be poor in spirit is realizing that we have nothing that we can ever do to earn our way into God's favor or into heaven. It's coming to grips, and this isn't easy because we are a very prideful people by nature, right? Coming to grips with the fact that because of our sinfulness, we are, we are perilous, that we are helpless, and we are unable to give anything of any value to God because we are spiritually bankrupt. And thus, we need to depend. This is where God wants us to get, totally depending on him, okay? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes the poor in spirit very clearly this way when he says to be poor in spirit means a complete absence of pride, self-assurance, and self-reliance. It's a tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness, our unworthiness as we come face to face with the Holy God. So to be poor in spirit, then, he goes on to write, is an emptying of our self-reliance and any claim that we might falsely be holding on to to believe that we have one God. Now I have to say, when you get to this point, okay, uh, Mill, that condition doesn't sound all that blessed to me. And, and maybe you're thinking the same thing. In fact, it flies against the general ways of thinking that this world that we live in um, reinforces every day. Isn't it the strongest and the self-sufficient, and the independent, and the most put-together people that that get the best things in life. Snooze, you lose, right? But, But that is the way the world thinks, not the way the kingdom of heaven. That's the way of the world, not the way of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying here that no matter what our status in life, we need to recognize we all have a spiritual poverty. Before we can come to God, in faith to receive the salvation and kingdom he offers we must uh, come to this humility that we can offer god nothing now i know i'm dating myself a little bit i do that all the time i'm the old guy on staff now but uh i don't think anyone or anything presents more clearly this thought that jesus presents here than the third verse of the old hymn rock of ages I, i never heard the guy who wrote it Augustus Toplady. That's quite a name, huh? Listen to this carefully. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We were talking about the proper application of this first beatitude on Tuesday in our preaching team meeting. I I wish you could all be a part of that. It's one of the highlights of my week to get together with the other pastors and talk about the text we're going to look at and study and present that week. But uh, it was pointed out, I, I couldn't agree more, that although this beatitude points out the fact that we have nothing to bring to God, right, I think the flip side of that, on the other side of that, is it's also true that God is not asking us to bring anything. When we humbly come to Jesus, he receives us just as we are. All the shame, all the doubt, all the sinfulness, all the brokenness, and then, praise the Lord, he begins to change us from the inside out as we surrender and submit our hearts to him. It is a process, isn't it? And you know, I started thinking about it, I think it might even have been mentioned in that same meeting, that the story of the repentant woman in the Gospel of Luke points that clearly, uh, drives that point even more deeply, I think. Remember the story? A woman known only for her utter sinfulness apparently burst into a dinner party where Jesus is having dinner with a Pharisee by the name of Simon. Um, She falls at Jesus' feet, she lavishes him, his uh, feet with a perfume and, and tears, and then she takes her hair and she dries, uh, dries his feet with her hair. And acknowledging, we find this woman very visually acknowledging and grieving over her sin, and she's turning to Jesus for mercy and for forgiveness. In contrast, and, and I, I believe, as Jesus points out in this, in staunch contrast, Simon the <laughs> Pharisee sitting there, this is whose house it is, right? And and he's so convinced of his righteousness. And therefore, he cannot overlook his strong judgment against this woman as a sinner. At the same time, he can't even begin to grasp the mercy that's flowing out of Jesus' heart. And, And he goes on to judge him as an unworthy or a false prophet. I thought about it, you know, if Simon were able to humbly see his own sinfulness, he would be able to understand what's happening. He would be able to likewise experience God's mercy and forgiveness. However, he is so locked in, as so many people are today, with their own smug self-assurance, uh, and the denial of uh, he, he can't bring himself to admit that he needed a savior. And and the thing that I see in this text is, like this humble or contrite woman, our tears of sorrow can become tears of joy when we come to grips with the weightiness of our sin when we accept the grace and the forgiveness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, our King. Jesus clearly shows us here that forgiveness is available to anyone and everyone who will humbly acknowledge our sinfulness and our need for God's divine grace. That's a great savior, isn't it? That's a great savior, isn't it? Thank you, thank you. And please don't miss the promise here that God makes to the poor in spirit, when they come humbly to him, according to verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, present tense, is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm sure you witnessed, you probably witness it every day, that humility is often seen as a weakness in our modern day society. In fact, in our culture, we honor, we honor those who uh, think so highly of themselves We also seek to put our needs and our wants above everything else. But that is the way of the world in contrast to the way of God's kingdom. Remember, our Savior and our King embodied himself in humility in his life here on earth. And here's the thing that he points out so clearly. Hear me well. Humility always comes before blessing. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so I gotta stop here and pause, and ask, have you, dear friend, come to the place where you recognize your need for God's grace and forgiveness and put your trust in Jesus as your savior? Don't let, as Simon did, your pride get in the way. Put your trust in Jesus. As you read on in verse four, Jesus goes on to reveal second that blessing comes when we see and treat sin the way God does. Blessed are those who mourn, declares Jesus, for they shall be comforted. You know, if you stop and think about it, living in a fallen and sinful world, we mourn about so many things, rightfully so. The loss of loved ones, Broken relationships, spiritual persecution, financial losses, health concerns. And if you're trying to strive to live for Jesus, you probably, like I do, deal with the persistent failures and battle over our sin. That's just to name a few. Whatever the reason that we are struggling, are mourning as Jesus' father, I don't want you to miss the sure promise here that you will be comforted if you turn to him. However, as I looked at the context here in our text of Jesus' sermon, I felt very confidently that flowing naturally from the first beatitude is the second beatitude. And I believe the emphasis here is on mourning over our sin, of thinking far too lightly about sin in our lives. And once again, the second beatitude flies against the face of the world's thinking. If you do something wrong, and you don't get caught, (laughs) uh, just bury it, move on, pretend like it never happened. Others handle sin today by making excuses, one I see often in my own life is covering it up or defending it or self-justification, no humility. But folks, that is the way of the world, not the way of Jesus' kingdom. According to scripture, when we humbly agree with God about how bad our sin is, When we confess it and we repent of it, walk away with it in God's power, Jesus promises here to comfort, forgive, and restore us to that fruitful and blessed life that he intends. Blessing comes when we see and treat sin the way God does. You know, when I was a teenager, I was mentored by a pastor who I loved dearly. And one day I remember having a conversation with him and he was pointing to the words of Isaiah 53. And he was saying, he said something to me that I've never forgotten some 50 years later. He said, Milt, if you look at the cross, you understand the sinfulness of our sin, another way of the weightiness of our sin. He said, think about it. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised and he was crushed for our iniquities. The divine chastising the wrath of God was put on him for our well-being. All we, not, not, no one is an exception to this, all we like sheep, we've gone astray, but listen, that God has laid on him the iniquity for us all. I don't know how anybody can read that, he said, and not see that this is not a light thing to be played with. The cross shows us the weightiness of our sin and our Savior's sacrifice. As you read on in verse five, Jesus goes on to reveal third blessing comes when we are meek. We are meek. Blessed are the meek, says Jesus, for you shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit. Now I know many of us hear the word meekness and immediately we think of weakness, but let me remind you that both Jesus and Moses are said to be meek in scripture, and let me tell you, Jesus and Moses were far from weak. I will also say that this word was used at the time it was spoken to describe an animal which had been tamed to obey the command of its owner. And so more accurately, the definition I take for meekness is power that is under control. Power that is under control. If you think about it, a strong animal like a horse or an ox is able to do a great deal of work. They are far from weak, but through the training and the discipline that has taken place in their life, they are meek and obedient to the will of their owner. And here's the other thing I will say. We want our lives to make a difference, right? Strength out of control is dangerous, but strength under control is powerful. It makes a difference. And that's the kind of attitude that Jesus is calling those within his kingdom to possess, power that is under control. Again, we far from celebrate meekness in our culture. It's all about instead celebrating that drivenness, that aggressiveness, that assertiveness. We celebrate too often things that other people, that we take from other people, sometimes purposely taking advantage of them. And I ask you, tell me when was the last time you went to a movie where they celebrated the virtue of meekness? We don't want that kind of movie. We want payback movies, i be back, right, kind of movies. <laughs> that's what entertains us, because that's what our culture holds in high value and celebrates. How different is the way of Jesus' thinking and teaching? And we're going to see that. His kingdom is so contrary, his thought processing. Uh, think things like, the last shall be first. Our, our, our giving is receiving. Our dying is living. Our our losing is finding. Our the least is the greatest. And listen, folks, I want you to see this ironically according to verse 5. It is not the assertive, arrogant, and harsh people that will inherit the earth. It's those that are meek. I was thinking about this concept, and it occurred to me that one of the single greatest blessings that comes with living with Christlike humility and being willing to forego our rights for the benefit of someone else is that it models the attitude of our King, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Something else that occurred to me as I was doing some cross-referencing is that meekness actually enables us to share the gospel with greater effectiveness with others. First Peter 3 verse 15 says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it, notice, gentleness with gentleness and with respect. I want, how often I wonder if, if that's not something we need to learn if we want to be more effective. And so striving for power and prestige says, Jesus is not my pathway for blessedness. Meekness is, power that's under control. And so I pause and ask you again, brothers and sisters, are we blessed in the way that we are, our behaviors and our attitudes representing this meekness that Jesus tells us about? I love verse 6. It's one of my favorite. I memorized it as a kid. Jesus goes on to reveal forth that blessing comes. I couldn't think of a better way to say it. Comes when we are hungry and thirsty for God and his righteousness. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, Jesus instructs. For they, listen to this, they shall be satisfied. Anybody here want to be satisfied today? Boy. As I read this fourth beatitude, the the passage that sprung to my mind was Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. The psalmist cries out here to the Lord, saying, As a deer, get the picture here, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O Lord, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? There's a longing there. You know, we picture this, I think, when we read it as, you know, Bambi and Thumper coming up to a stream, right? I don't think that's what David has in mind here when he's painting here. Instead, this is a picture of an animal who is desperately wandering in the desert and looking for water so that they can simply survive. And likewise, I believe that what Jesus speaks of here when he talks about a hunger and thirst for him and his righteousness, Folks, we're talking about an insatiable insatiable desire to know God, to honor God, and to be close to Him in everything we do. It's about an all-consuming passion which burns deep within us to be filled with His presence. Just as an animal would search for food in desperation to survive, Jesus is saying so, we ought to daily search for God and his word and his presence in our lives. And when we do, Jesus promises, listen to this, he will quench that thirst and satisfy our hunger. In fact, the word satisfied here in verse six appears in a future passive verb, reminding us that this is not something that we do for ourselves, but something that he does in us as we surrender our lives to him. I love John chapter six, verse 35, where Jesus tells his disciple, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, here's a word of warning. We read these verses, we know these verses, but much as eating unhealthy junk food can dull our our physical appetite, I believe so, That which is not of God, can dull our spiritual appetite. You know, if you think about it, this happens to non-believers as they look for happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction in any area except for a proper relationship to God with Jesus, through Jesus Christ. It's all about friends, it's all about power, it's all about achievements and money and material gains, entertainment, education, sports, hobbies, sex, drugs, and alcohol, and yes, even some are steeped into religious activities, all of which leaves them empty, emptier than when they, before they started. But our Christians, are we really all that different when it comes to prioritizing our time with God? Don't we likewise allow the appetite, our appetite for God to be dulled by chasing a whole bunch of other things? So many of us, I think, we snack our way through the day on all kinds of junk food activities. And as a result, we too often have no time to feast in God's presence. Oh, we complain, I've done it, about our busyness and our tiredness, but are we talking, dear friends, about a scheduling problem or more of a hard too often we take God in small doses throughout the day and throughout the week, and somehow we hope that on Sunday we can catch up on our time with the Lord. Jesus says the genuine, lasting blessings come into our lives only when we are hungry and thirsty for God and his right. And I'm not talking about some legalistic checklist here. This is something we long to do. We want to do because we understand the desperate need for us to do so. I wonder today, as we think about this fourth beatitude, do I, do you need to reorder our schedules? Do we need to check our hearts when it comes to spending time and thirsting for God? Earlier I mentioned, ironically, perhaps earnestly or inappropriately, I don't get it, what this hashtag blessed is and why it's so very popular. Um, it's all through social media, college students, celebrities, you know, or hashtag blessing their exotic and expensive vacations. Honestly, I saw some really depressing ones too. Many simply said hashtag blessed to wake up this morning. What a place to be. Why this desire to add a hashtag blessed, to defer credit away from oneself, or God, or a higher power, um, I don't know. But I believe that its popularity and its practice indicates, something to my heart anyway, that everybody wants to be or feel blessed. That pathway can vary from person to person, But everyone wants to be or feel blessed. And here's another observation that I made, sad one, when I started looking at some of these posts, these hashtag blessed posts on social media this week. I found that a very large majority of the hashtag blesseds were on things that are temporary. Exotic vacations, as I mentioned, nice cars, wealth, jobs, achievements, life, relationships, health. You name it. They could go down the list. And you know what? Every one of those things can be gone like that. And that's my final contrast. As we talk about God's kingdom and the world's kingdom, when we have Jesus, we are truly hashtag blessed. Folks, we serve an eternal king who governs us by his word and by his spirit and promises never to leave us nor forsake us. All the freedoms and all the blessings that he has secured for us are eternally secure and protected because his reign and his kingdom is forever. And when you think about this great king, he knew us before he even created the world, he knew that we would need redemption and rescuing. And though Jesus is sacrificed, and through his sacrifice on the cross, He has provided complete forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. Amazingly, this never ceases to amaze me anyway. When God looks on us, a bunch of broken sinners, he doesn't see us for who we are, but through the blood of Jesus Christ, his beloved son, our king, so that we can be found in God's sight, holy and without fault in his eyes. We don't deserve it. It's his grace and his mercy. And according to the scriptures, nothing, and I do mean nothing, in this world or the world to come can separate us from the presence of our great king. And so let me encourage you, and by the way, when that's true, I want to repeat it again. You are indeed, it's worth celebrating, right? Hashtag blessed, yay, (laughs) okay? But let me encourage you. I've got to tell you, this is a hard study. I was so convicted in so many things, and I can't imagine if you're listening to this and you're trying to walk with Jesus that you're not convicted to. But we can listen to these things and walk away and do nothing, or we can ask God to change our hearts, reorder our hearts, reorder our church. Do we need to ask God about our behaviors? Is it humble? Are we seeking the needs of others? Do we think far too seriously of our, uh, not seriously enough? Are we abusing grace? Are our behaviors and our attitudes meek? And this last one is the key, I think. When it comes to spending time feasting in the word of God, feasting after God's righteousness, are we doing that as we should? Are we getting sucked into all the junk food this world distracts us with? we are looking to god as i mentioned earlier to make changes in all of us our church to make us more align our lives and our values and our priorities more in alignment with our great king and god are you with me are you with us let's pray father i thank you boy these are some hard statements that your your son makes but we know lord that uh, Lord, as we walk with you, as we surrender daily to your spirit, Lord, you are transforming us every day to be more like Jesus, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we need to do some serious evaluation, starting with me, about where our priorities, where our values are. I pray that, Lord, you will help us as we walk through this series together to truly align our hearts with your priorities, your values, and your passions. I pray that you'll Do these things in Jesus' name.